it is quite simply a uh, cruising single barrel rum mm. with uh, on ice uh, because, as I was joking earlier, I, I just needed the sugar, but I also needed the booze. <laughs> so, so nothing, nothing fancy. Yesterday was classic gin martinis. Yeah, with double olive. That's exactly what I was drinking last night. Do you have a preferred gin? So I really like the Bloom gin, and mm. the the um, the Nalette's Silver is is just fabulous. I love both those. In this particular case, it was Hendrix. Oh, see, I can't do Hendrix in a martini. I like Hendrix in a in a in a like a gin and tonic. A GNT? It's, it's too, yeah. yeah, it's too floral for me in a martini. So I really like the florally gins. And yeah, I, I like them, but not in, for not in martinis. I need to have a very mm. traditional London dry. I usually drink Boodles. Oh, Boodles is fabulous. Yeah, uh, and actually, actually, now I'm going to have to go and try and find some Boodles because, yeah, and, and so it and it also depends what I put in the martini because I do tend to prefer a twist over olives. But I was drinking mm. olives yesterday because I think otherwise I think the olive flavor overwhelms the quality of the gin or the qualities of the gin. Definitely possible. And, and so and so I tend to I tend to go for like the twists mm. in my classic martinis, gin martinis. If I'm not having a Gibson with a lovely pickled onion in it, Ooh. I have uh, I have the olives that are soaked in vermouth. Mm-hmm. Those I think are the best for martinis. I have a jar of I think it's like the Jap- Jack Ruby Cocktail Company who who also make really good uh, liquors and essences and things like that. Mm. Uh, not a sponsor, should be, given how much I freaking spend on them. Well, you buy one <laughs> bottle, you spend half a paycheck. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have, I a ridiculous amount of their stuff because, like last summer, when Wes wasn't drinking and he came down for Fourth of July, I bought all of these tinctures and tonics and and shrubs and all this kind of stuff so that he could have fun and exciting. Mm. And I did. It was very thoughtful of you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed. So I, I going back to the whole point about gin and, and I felt I was drinking too much too much bourbon, so I moved over to the gins. Uh-huh. Um, I made a gin and tonic. So I have the tonic uh, mixture. So basically, the, the 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 tonic essence, whatever it is, quinine. Yes, the quinine syrup, a really really nice one, nice sharp one. You know, mm. Not of any danger of malaria, although you know <laughs> it is the south, so who knows. Mm-hmm. And I have this wonderful mint and blueberry syrup as well. And so I made this mint and blueberry mm. uh, gin and tonic. Uh, that was that was really quite nice. That sounds fantastic. Did you say the company was the Jack Ruby Cocktail Company? It's interesting branding, isn't it? Like like after <laughs> the guy who shot Oswald? Is that really is that their thinking? I, I have no idea what their thinking is, but that that is the name as I remember oh, it. That's great. Yeah. I, I went through that same that same process when I, when I first saw it. <laughs> like like they, did, they did what? <laughs> well, it hits you like a shot to the head. So exactly, right. <laughs> like, boom. Uh, someone had to go there. I was like, I was just like gritting my teeth. This is like, oh, no, don't. <laughs> don't worry, I'll jump on that one. You, you, gotta, you gotta wear the big white hat and, and just show, hey Oswald, every time you open a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, leads us smoothly to talking about dandyism. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to the Modern Dandy's Guide to Manliness. We are so thrilled today. We have a special guest, Natty Adams, joining us in our quarantined virtual studios. (laughs) Natty, thank you so much for being here. We also have, of course, Liam and Josh. I'm Wes. Thank you, listeners. Wow. Natty. 
I yes. went on your page to get some intro details about you. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> what we thought we'd do today is, is focus more on you as an author, a writer, and a journalist. And we can talk about this, the suit making towards, towards the end. But as I looked uh, now, of course, I own We Are Dandy. Uh, I could not get I am dandy. I couldn't get a copy of it, so I'm still. <laughs> but I I'm do. still on I the <laughs> I'm still on the search for that one. But for those who don't know you, author of two books, journalist uh, for several publications: uh, New York Times, Rolling Stone. My favorite from the list was The Rake. Mm. This is something <laughs> I didn't know about. Recipient of the 2013 Dandy of the Year Award by Dandyism.net. I'm going to want to hear all about that. <laughs> and then a graduate, a graduate of NYU and a master's from Columbia, both circling around dandyism as a whole. So really this has been not just something you're, you're now getting involved in, but for some time has been a focus of your life. Yeah. Where did this all start? I guess, you know, that's kind of my first question is how, or, or I guess, when did you start seeing yourself as a dandy and become involved in such great study and passion for dandyism. Yeah. Well, thanks awfully for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be on the show and and, and get to finally talk to all, all of you at once. Dandyism has been a, a near lifelong obsession of mine. When I was younger, I before I sort of started studying it formally, I was always interested in uh, fashion subcultures specifically. Mm-hmm. So mods, punks, goths, skinheads, whatever it was, I was sort of fascinated with the idea of people uh, dressing up to kind of make a point. And I went through all sorts of phases, um, like a lot of people do. And I think, and I was also always an Anglophile too. So there was an element of that. And then when I got to college and I was studying history and literature, whenever I had an opportunity to do a sort of independent study or a, a thesis of my own, it always tended back towards something having to do with subcultures or fashion or music scenes or things like that. And at one point, finally, when I was probably a, I guess a junior or senior in, in undergrad, I started studying dandyism and studying Oscar Wilde and Lord Byron and Bo Brummel and all these people. And I realized, okay, this is the sort of origin of this specifically male obsession with dressing with a purpose. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of modern roots of it. So that became a kind of total obsession. And it's one of the things where I I will not be very humble about it and say that I've spent so much time studying this that I I am like a, I think I'm a leading expert on dandyism. I'm one of the world's leading dandyologists. Yes. I I think that is without question. (laughs) And it was absolute pleasure to be able to meet with you in New Orleans back in the weekend before Mardi Gras. In in the before times. In the long, long ago. In previous times. It was a long time ago. And BC. Before COVID. Before BC, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, thank you so much for introducing us to Jewel of the South because that place is fabulous. Oh, great. And, and we, we are definitely looking forward to going back there. Mm-hmm. And I, firstly, I, I loved how you express, I mean, and also your enthusiasm expression of dandyism. And I think one of the things for me is, is like, how did you get to the point where you managed to focus that into? creating your first book. And as, as I said to you, it's like, I, I love it, is that it is my little break during the day because I pick it up when I can step away from the computer and, the, and all of the, the, the meetings and things that I have to do. I pick it up and I read about these dandies and you've collected 
such a body of work about these most phenomenal people. How on earth did you start with mm. with getting to the point of there was what forty people, forty plus people in your first book? Yeah, there's forty. I think there's between forty and fifty in both of the books. In undergrad, my obsession with dandyism was largely just kind of a. It was never something I thought would be a career of any kind. Um, I, I hadn't didn't have any plans on working in fashion or anything like that. I, I liked writing and I liked reading. And, and so this was something I was good at writing and reading about. When I got to grad school and I realized that what I wanted to do was write books, uh, I thought the, the natural place to start was in a, with a book about dandies. And I had been working on a book proposal on the history of dandies because I had kind of convinced myself that dandies didn't really exist anymore and that this was uh, something that should be discussed in the past tense. And it wasn't until I met uh, Rose Callahan, mm. and she was taking all these photographs of people who were sort of contemporary dandies, and I had been interviewing some of the same people, and we started working together on a few magazine articles, and then her photographs, which are really the heart of the book, are so gorgeous that this German publisher, Gestalten, reached out to her and said, we'd love you to publish the book. And she very, I mean, she basically, I have her to thank for a large part of my life's trajectory because she very kindly said, yeah, I'd love to do a book. And I think it should have text in it. And Natty should write that text because she just as easily could have said, okay, I just, you know, this is just to be a photo book of these gorgeous photos of dressed up men, but she wanted it to have a text element to it and wanted to get deeper into these people's stories. I do think you undersell yourself because the photographs are wonderful. And, and Rose is her eye for the structure and capturing the essence of a moment is phenomenal. The text, though, and I, I love reading, so so that's also part of the bias, but I'm also a very visual person. Mm. I, I think that do not under, undersell, and I can't overestimate how, oh. how well you have written about these people and captured their words in a really compelling way. I'm glad you think so. I, I agree with that. What I, I think what I mean is that the book could have existed without – the text. I don't think it would have been as good a book, and Rose agrees with me. <laughs> uh, we, we, we absolutely agree that because we came together and worked on this, and we both had our own strengths, and we complement each other so well in terms of what we do, that created a, a better product in the end. It, it could have been, you know, they asked Rose to do a book of photographs. It could have been just yeah. a book of photographs. Most most coffee table books don't have this much text in them. Yes, and, and I think you've captured it really well. So. One of the things that got me here is is that, and we had this a little bit of this conversation when we met in, in New Orleans, which is you, you capture the breadth of being a dandy. And so this morning I picked it up, I flicked it open, which is what I do is I just, I just browse it. I just open it up and I just read whatever page that I get to. And this morning I picked up and I was reading about Tony Sylvester, mm. like his style and approach to dandyism. And, and I kind of liked it because like Josh, you'll appreciate this because He's, he's bearded and burly, mm. was a really nice contrast to a lot of the dandies who are, and it ranges from the effete all mm -hmm. the way through to the very, uh, there's such a range mm. of styles that go into dandyism. So how would you define or explain modern dandyism? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's that's kind of the the... This is ha what happened when we made the first book is we sort of went into it and we we're like, well, we, we had studied dandies for so long that we could kind of identify them pretty easily and be like, oh yeah, that guy's a dandy, that guy's a dandy. But we didn't really have a, a working solid definition until we'd gotten quite 
far through the book, because what we were finding is we'd meet a lot of these guys who not only had diverse backgrounds in terms of race and age and occupation and sexual orientation, uh, but also in terms of style. So as you said, we've got guys in there who are effeminate, guys in there who are very masculine, guys who wear full face of makeup, guys who are very austere in their elegance, um, you know, people who are very retro, people who are very fashion forward. But all of them are dandies. And we thought, well, what's the thing that unites them all? And we realized that it's an obsession with elegance. And they define elegance in different ways. So that's what we took it to mean. You could have a more expansive definition of dandyism that would include people in designer sneakers and jeans if you want to. People, some academics kind of do that. And they say, oh, well, dandyism is just about dressing uh, with purpose or intent or something. Hmm. For us, we thought it had to do with elegance. It had to do with uh, eccentricity to some degree. And it had to do with intelligence, too. The best dandies were people who were thoughtful about it. But yeah, like you said, there's this huge breadth. And you've got people like Tony Sylvester, who's like a big, big guy with a beard. And he wears, he combines a lot of workwear with tailoring. And then you've got guys like Patrick McDonald, who wears a full face of makeup every day. And um, in the front row of all the runway shows at New York Fashion Week, you know, the two very different kind of lives, but they, they do have this common thread of, of obsession with elegance. I still love that expression of you know, the obsession with elegance because it does translate into that attention to detail and mm. and refinement and, and and again I think your book captures this wonderfully where you have various people who you know, express themselves in in different ways. Doran Wittelsbach's comment about you know, that, that whole thing about when asked how long he's been, I'm quoting, when asked how long he's been dressing the way he does, he says, with disdain for both grammar and manners, since me and your mom first started dating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, He was an asshole. <laughs> I, and, and he absolutely looks it. <laughs> what is notable about that, it is the only, like, four paragraph dandy profile in the entire book that I've found so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the others, uh, they stop to your point. It's like, you can be a dandy and be an asshole. We're trying to encourage people to not be an asshole and be a dandy. Well, with, with Doran, he was very, um, uh, uncooperative and, and he was like, a, he was kind of a jerk. Uh, but that, that's not to say that, I mean, being a jerk is a great tradition in, Dandyism historically. <laughs> well, you know, Oscar like, Wilde. Oscar Wilde was a, a, a catty bastard. You know, Bo Brummel famously was like a great master of the insult. Uh, so, you know, I, it didn't really phase me that he was acting that way. I just thought I had to sort of faithfully report it in, in as, as uh, sort of lighthearted a way as I could. And I love how you capture like some of the other essences of, of being a dandy. It's like the doctors Andre and Keith Churchwell. Mm. Again, I, I just like gorged on the photographs because mm. I'm sitting here with flicking through the book because it's like going, oh my word, that is just perfectly crafted and put together. But it's not, to your point, it's not, it, it's almost like subtle in that everything is like that perfectly picked mm-hmm. and like that, that what's that, that the Sir Harvey Ames comment about Oh, the, you shouldn't wear the suit, or that you should wear the suit. The suit shouldn't wear you, something like that. The suit shouldn't wear you, and it is also that you, a gentleman, should should um, choose his clothes with care, put them on oh, with, right. with 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 diligence, and then look and then completely forget. Look, look, mm-hmm. it look like he's completely forgotten about them. Yeah, you know, yeah. obviously, very quotable guy. Who, who, great, great press, great mm-hmm. PR. 
I mean, they the the church walls just like seem to be the epitome of that. Mm. How much did you see about that? About people using it just as a a more subtle method method of expression as opposed to peacocking. Those kind of guys, I think, are distinctive in their subtlety. Uh, the other person who springs to mind immediately is Bruce Boyer, the the menswear writer, who's very very subtle and restrained. And that's definitely like a school of thought and dandyism is that you shouldn't be too flamboyant. One of the things I I loved about the book and about this diversity of styles that I hope is that people who approach it from these different angles, some people who come to it through like a traditional tailoring thing where it's all about restraint and proportions, might take something away from the more flamboyant people and the more flamboyant people might take something away from the more restrained people or might, you know, Mm. look at that and, and be able to appreciate them for what they're doing. I personally love them all. I mean, the, the church wells are an interesting example because they are so immaculately well-dressed and uh, I wouldn't call them restrained necessarily (laughs) because they definitely stand out, but they're not, uh, you know, it doesn't look like they're, it doesn't look like they're dressing up. I mean, it looks it looks so natural on them, like yes. like you said. It looks like the right thing for them to be wearing. You know, one of the episodes, like Josh and I were commenting on on that, like particularly like, and when I was living in on the borders of Oakland, Sundays at church, watching the people turn up in these immaculately presented outfits. You know, chocolate chalk stripe and with the hat these men turning up to church as they're going again it it's you know, on some people it would be a caricature but when it's it's when you see a, a group of people who are mm. making this effort to believe in something mm. it, you have to respect the as you say the attention to detail and yeah. the you know they aren't straying into as you say caricature or peacocking it's it's simply an you know, an expression of elegance, as you say. Mm. So how influential was your time and your move to London, and how did that shape your perspective on dandyism? It was pretty major. My first sort of lengthy stay in London, actually, I was there for like half a year when I was about five years old with my mother when she was teaching there. But the first time I was there, I did a semester there. Uh, It was the first time I spent like, you know, more than a few weeks there at a time. And that was very important formative. I was already an Anglophile and, and had been for a long time, but I think I was there sort of at the same time, at the same time that like Williamsburg was becoming a thing in New York, Shoreditch was becoming a thing in, in London. <laughs> so I was kind of up in the middle of all that. And I was friends with people who were in bands and all that stuff. And I was walking around in a skinny tie and probably a white belt or something and shaggy hair. And it was I think London really got me appreciating there was a certain kind of uh, openness to eccentricity that I didn't even see as much in New York as I did when I was a kid. And like really unusual looking people even riding the subway Mm -hmm. and dressing strangely. And in New York, and there wasn't the same kind of aloofness uh, about uh, that the general population has in New York. You know, New York people are a little bit too kind of too cool to, to notice or pretend that they are. Whereas in London, I felt like there was a real kind of embrace of, of eccentricity and, and encouragement of it. I think it is the cultural embrace in Britain of the iconoclast and the, I said, the eccentric is, is, is deeply embedded in British culture. Yeah, absolutely. And a weird 
closed-minded multiculturalism. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. And it is literally a weird close. It is the only way that I feel that I can explain it. And for me as well, coming from Australia, which you know, Tasmania and so forth, which is definitely not the height of sartorial <laughs> society, to London and watching people, firstly, just seeing that breadth and people just like not batting an eyelid at what I what I thought were just these incredible outfits. My elder sister had been a punk and very involved in the punk scene. So I'd had some exposure to that and the the mod 80s sort of emo culture and a bunch of things like that certainly had been a, a bit of a preparation, but nothing to actually landing in London and going out and hanging out in Notting Hill yeah. and places like that and just like seeing what people wore. And then once I, I, after the first couple of years, about three years in, when I joined the management consulting, it's just like going, you know, having the partners like check your suits to see whether they had mm. you know, working lapel, working buttons and having lapel ties in, in case you had a need to put a flower in it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Those kind of details, it's like going, oh, why have you got plastic? You should have your tailor you know, put all your buttons in bone. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because at the same time that I was sort of experiencing East London and this kind of youth scene that was happening there, it was also my first exposure to St. James and to, you know, Savile Row and German Street and, and uh, my first time I got invited to any of the old clubs. So that was eye-opening in a different kind of way. And then to suddenly see that there were – there's also when I became aware of the chat magazine and I started having things to do with them and writing a little bit for them and that kind of stuff. So I saw that there was some kind of crossover between this old world – and this like new youthful world. And it was kind of this, this interesting continuum of eccentricity and both tradition and, and flaunting of traditions. Uh, and to your point about the closed-minded multiculturalism, I felt like at the same time that I was sort of impressed by all this eccentricity happening around me, I also, like, it was the first time, I mean, I, I don't quite know how to put this, but I mean, I got called a packy on the street. Um, uh, yeah. You know, I, I, English people are quicker to throw a punch than, than Americans are. That might just because, be because people here don't know if you have a gun. But uh, um, <laughs> there was that, that other kind of like street culture that was very different to you know, even what I experienced growing up in New York. I feel like in New York, you get a lot of kind of tough people talking and, and scaring each other, but you don't get as much like, you know, bar fights erupting at a moment's notice and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I, I may have been involved in a little bit of yeah, that. Now myself. we're on Liam's topic. I noticed the same thing. It's like, so in, in, in Australia is, is that you didn't mouth off as much as Americans do because mm. you're going to get punched in the face. Right. I went from Australia being fairly um, rambunctious and I went to the UK and it was like, no, this is seriously, Seriously, people are getting glassed in your local mm-hmm. bar. Yeah, and I don't think it's about the the, the gun co- culture. I, I just think it's about the fact that there is a brawl culture mm. in Britain, which is a couple of thousand years old. Yeah, and and you just can't get away from it. And there there is also that. That's the weird thing is that uh, it sounds horrible to say use the term casual racism, but the mm-hmm. ingrained racism and judgment on people is there. But then there's also, this is why I said it's weird, is that there is also the embrace of, almost subtle embrace of that 
into contemporary culture. It's like Britain's most popular food is freaking curries. Sure. And, you know, the fabrics from the and tiling and things like that, mm. things from the Middle East and the Islamic cultures and from the Indian subcontinent and, and Asia have what's woven their way into oh, essential Britishness. Yeah. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you're a, an imperialist colonial culture. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I my Anglophilia entirely stems from, and my, my mom is kind of sort of horrified when I say this, but it entirely stems <laughs> from my my being, my mother's side of the family being Indian and being from a very anglicized military Indian mm. uh, family. So that's that's entirely where my Anglophilia comes from is this imperial history. One of the uh, articles in your in the in the first book in in the I Am Dandy, which is um, with Barima Nyatnkek. Yeah, Burma, Burma Nanteki, yeah. Thank you. Sorry, I just absolutely butchered that. I was definitely yeah, trying so, not to. Yeah. <laughs> I thought was fabulous because that's one of the things that I noticed in the UK was that there were all of the historic things, as you said, from, from India and the colonies merging their way back into British culture. The upwelling of fashion nods and and fabrics and patterns and, and color combinations that were coming out of Africa was definitely rising up through. I felt it was uh, Oswald Boating and, and so forth back in the 90s was coming to the forefront. I think that that's been a really fascinating element of fashion and how that's then being interpreted into how men dress and present themselves. What are your thoughts on that? That's a very, I mean, so that's kind of uh, something we addressed more in the second book because the first book, we mainly did New York, Paris, London. That's sort of what we had the budget for. Uh, and the book did well enough that our publisher said, well, we'd love you to do a sequel. How would you want the sequel to be different? And we said, oh, well, we want to go uh, beyond these sort of major fashion capitals. We want to go to, we want to go someplace in Africa and we want to go someplace in Asia. Because uh, we knew we wouldn't have the budget to go everywhere. We wanted to go to South America. We wanted to go to Russia. I mean, there were all sorts of places, but we, we thought, okay, well, let's pick one place in Asia and one place in Africa where we know that there are a lot of people in a small place where we can cover a lot of ground on our budget um, and our time. So we chose Tokyo and Johannesburg. Mm. And in both those places, we got to see how dandyism, which is, you know, dandyism in modern terms is, an, is a sort of European invention, but that impulse is, is a completely universal thing, I think. And what we got to see was we got to see people who were taking bits and pieces from their own cultures, from other cultures, and building something new out of it, especially in South Africa, because most of the men we interviewed there were in their mid to late 20s. So they were the first generation born after apartheid. They're called the born free generation. And they're a big part of what they were conscious of was this a sort of nationalistic without the opprobrium of you know forcing people to wear only native cloths or something like that it wasn't mm -hmm. a kind of top-down nationalism or something but it's this idea of trying to create a south african style for themselves that could hold its own on a global level especially with with the advent of social media you had these guys in south africa in johannesburg who were suddenly like you know what i am not just dressing for the people around me. I'm dressing for the people in Milan and the people in New York and the people in Paris and the people in Tokyo. 
So I'm going to compete on their level and we're going to create a sort of South African style that holds its own among these other places. So that was really interesting. And they did things like include their own native fabrics and all sorts of elements. I think a point you're making is, is about how individualistic being a dandy is. Yeah. And again, the, the obsession with excellence is a part of it, but it's not everyone looking the same. Yeah. It's that someone expressing themselves in a feeling, having the, the comfort and confidence to be able to express themselves regardless of, or actually not, not regardless, but also in regard to a an ideal of some kind. Mm-hmm. I wanted to jump in there. I, I've been, first of all, just daydreaming almost of how amazing this interview is to listen to the two of you discuss through this. It's been a real treat. I wanted to, but I, I was like, wait, I'm in this podcast. The, 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 I can ask a question if I want. Uh, because you're, you're dancing around these, these parts right here about the, the intent and the regard and the, the pursuit of the elegance and the attention. I wanted to know if you had seen that carry beyond the clothing. Are you seeing oh, yeah. these folks uh, take that into other aspects of their life? Absolutely. Uh, so this is a, like a great part for me to mention that I personally have a kind of uh, distinction between capital D dandies and lowercase d dandies. I think the word dandy can mean you know like, that guy's a dandy. He's just a, he's a well dressed guy. He's a guy who you know likes fine things. I think capital D dandies are people who have a sort of almost pathological hunger for this kind of stuff. They're people who can't not exist this way. It's almost a kind of obsessive compulsive condition. And those guys, it touches every single part of their life. There's not a single thing that they do that is not informed by their dandyism. Uh, the most obvious example is, this, is, is, and this is something that Rose is so good at, when given the opportunity, we always photograph people in their own homes. Mm-hmm. And so you'd absolutely see, and this is something I talked with Bethany about on, on her podcast, their interiors that they lived in and designed were definitely extensions of their wardrobe and their dandyism went beyond their closets and into the rest of their home. I mean, even the way they moved or the kind of transportation they used. And it wasn't just like a matter of collecting nice things or something like that. It was very much a holistic thing for them to the point where I think that some of them would probably go slightly insane if they didn't have the opportunity to express this about themselves. Like it was such a, <laughs> a major part of who they are that if they were denied that, it would be really kind of fatal almost. But yeah, I, it touches on their choices of food, their choices of partners, their choices of uh, the, the kinds of parties they throw. I, re- I think true dandyism is sort of all-consuming. Yeah, and I, I want to piggyback on that too because you know we, we talked a little bit ago about you know, the obsession with elegance and you said you could be a dandy in designer jeans and sneakers. I'm thinking to you know the guy in... Austin or somewhere down south whose boots are always impeccable. And, you know, mm. how do you think of that word elegance? And how can the quote unquote modern dandy start looking for ways to apply elegance without feeling like they have to wear, you know, the three piece suit with the watch chain and, and yeah. be that sort of very traditional looking dandy? Yeah. I think, I mean, I think this is so, in addition to the distinction between 
lowercase and uppercase dandies, I also make a distinction between dandies and dandyism. And I think mm. that dandies, true dandies, are kind of rare people who are um, overwhelmingly driven by this passion. Dandyism, on the other hand, I think is something that anyone can participate in or use. It can be seen as a, I mean, whereas I think the sort of capital D dandies, it's almost like a, like an illness for them or something like a, you know, <laughs> uh, I think that with other people, you can kind of take it on as a, a philosophy or a lifestyle choice and you can, you can participate in dandyism to different degrees. So you can take elements of it and discard others. It might not make you a dandy, but you can have a little bit of dandyism in, in your life regardless. And that can come down to, you know, having a great collection of Lucchese boots or whatever. You know, I, again, one of the things about the diversity of the guys in the book is that I don't think that a guy in, in jeans and sneakers is really a dandy. I think that for me, it has something to do with dressing up. But I'm, one thing that I learned from doing these books was to constantly was that my opinions about these kind of stuff was much more malleable than I, it, I realized going into it. And by the end of it, I think my my own understanding of elegance had become a much more kind of Catholic, that is to say, like eclectic uh, take on it. You know, I began to say, oh, yeah, this guy in workwear, he is elegant, even though I would have in the past, if someone started talking to me about Japanese denim, I would have sort of tuned them out and be like, why do I care about this? But now mm-hmm. if they can if they can communicate that that enthusiasm successfully, I'm I'm quite ready to pick it up myself and and just I guess encounter it and deal with it more. Maybe not take it on as my own thing, but uh, certainly have more respect and understanding for it. You make a good point there, and we talked on a previous episode about about hats and how hats quickly you know they can become either part of who you are or they can be cosplay. Sure. And it, it seems like what you're getting at here with, with sort of the ethos and the obsession and, and the, the borderline mental illness is it is that distinction, right? If you are a capital D dandy, this is, this is who you are. You're not just, I guess, capital D versus small D dressing up, right? Like, right. Like you dress up to an occasion. You're not, you're not dressing up in a costume. Yeah. Like a capital D dandy, if, if the capital D dandy got invited to a wedding and they said, oh yeah, you know, you have to go buy a... Uh, we're all wearing matching suits, and you have to go to, you know, men's warehouse to buy one. Uh, the, the this is my nightmare, dandy. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, I won't be attending your wedding. You know, like I, I, might, I might not. I, in fact, we might not be friends anymore because um, you've asked yeah, me to do I, such I, a. I, I was going to go swipe left, blocked. Yeah, because yeah. uh, yeah. you've you've asked me to do something that's so out of keeping with with my essence. You know, you obviously you don't even know who I am if you would if you would ask me to consider something like, whereas I think most people, including people who are sort of, I guess, dandy curious might be the word. Um, <laughs> oh, you know. oh, that's, that's a thing now. <laughs> that is definitely a thing now. Well, it's, it's funny. I was speaking to a class from Vassar last week, a class that was like a fashion and philosophy class. And they did a unit on dandyism and I was talking to them and they were trying to get me to sort of come up with sort of analogies when I made this distinction between dandyism and, and the dandy and I said, well, yeah, you know how like you can not identify as gay, but you can still have gay sex with people. Go on. You can, you know, it's the difference between, between like being gay and, and like homosexual sex or something. You, know, it's, you, can, you can make that choice, but for some people it's not a choice, you know? <laughs> so 
I actually think that's that's remarkably insightful and absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for some people, it's, it's just the way they are, but you can also give it a shot if you want, you know? <laughs> Or take a shot. Anyway, moving on. Yeah. Uh, so Wes, Wes has now left the room. Uh, no, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm more intrigued than ever. No, the... Uh, <laughs> more curious. I'm already cleaning my drink off the walls. <laughs> <laughs> no, bringing it back around, when you when you focus on dandyism and, and identification, this this is my attempt at segue, I actually had a, a question about for you as a writer, but also as a person who is passionate about this topic. Do you think of yourself as a writer that focuses on dandyism or or that you are a dandy that is creating through the vehicle of writing? Uh, that's a great question. I I was very – so when this all started and I was going around interviewing people at at first, the very beginning, when before we even had a book contract, when Rose and I were just kind of feeling things out, I was very, I was still of this opinion that, oh, dandies are a thing of the past, like true dandies don't really exist, or that if they do, you wouldn't really know that they were a true dandy until after they were gone or something like that. Like the dandies mm. were the stuff of legend to me. So I was hesitant to use the word dandy to describe living people, including myself, especially myself. And in fact, a lot of the people we talked to in the first book in particular, were hesitant to use the word dandy for themselves because they thought of it as such a kind of a grand title or like a, a kind of a very uh, grandiose thing to call oneself. Uh, one of them said, oh yeah, you know, dandy is like a knighthood. You can't give it to yourself, um, <laughs> which I thought was funny, but and it, it kind of became like, well, who am I to call myself a dandy if, you know, Oscar Wilde's a dandy or Bo Brummel's a dandy. You've got these incredible figures in history and it, it felt like I was kind of putting myself on the same level as them, which, which is, which is, wouldn't be the case. But again, as my, my kind of understanding of this has expanded a bit and actually become, I think, a bit more open-minded and less close-minded about what is and isn't a dandy and what is and isn't dandyism. My own understanding is that I, I, if people call me a dandy, I'm thrilled now. You know, I'm not going to try to shy away from that label. I still feel, partly it's because I write about it so much. Mm. I feel like I'm slightly, I should somehow be a little bit disqualified because it's something that I, it's, it's like work also for me. Mm. Um, just like I used to have this feeling that like people who worked in people who are like either entertainers or worked in fashion couldn't really be dandies because it was part of their job. Like it was, Mm. or they had to really be very convincing. It had to be like, like Duke Ellington or something. People always ask if David Bowie's a dandy, and I never really thought so because he was always wearing these costumes and personas and stuff. But I don't know. Maybe he is. I mean, so for myself, I guess I I aspire to be a, a dandy. I would love it if when I'm gone, people remember me more than anything else for being a great dandy. That would be really cool. <laughs> I know we're going to have a future episode on tailoring, particularly when we actually get to have our, our suits and things made yeah. with you. But when... Josh and I met with you in New Orleans. You were wearing an Italian white flannel suit with ribbon that you'd found in Turkey. Yeah, on the mm-hmm. the, the lapels and the cuffs. Mm. And um, if that's not dandy, I seriously <laughs> don't know what is. Yeah. No, that's true. So that's definitely the yeah. I I I will. I'll uh, I'll let you knight me there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm certainly not in, you know, going to deny that uh, I'm totally enthralled with the idea of being a dandy myself. And I hope that I am. And I, I, and people seem to seem to accept that I am. So I'm okay with that. What I, what I will say is that I, it's hard having met so many people like Hamish Bowles from Vogue and uh, Gay mm-hmm. Talese, uh, you know, these like really next guys like the Churchwell brothers. Um, you yeah. meet these, especially these older guys who've been doing it for a long time. And you think, well, you know, they've been doing this their whole life and they were doing it when no one was writing a book about them for how they dressed, you know, like nobody yeah. was, they weren't trying to get likes on Instagram. You know, that's one of those kind of tricky things with younger when we did the second book, Instagram had taken off and suddenly we had all these like young people from around the world who were like, Oh my God, I want to be in your book. I'm such a dandy. And it was like, well, some of you guys look great, but you've also only been doing this for two years. And like, I have no idea if you're going to be doing this next year. The first book, we were like eagerly hunting for dandies around the world and we had to really work to find them. The second book we had, we found ourselves like vetting people, you know, <laughs> it was weird. It was a very big change. Uh, and again, going back to one of the things I liked about uh, Tony Silvestro was was like describing himself as a gentle thug, mm-hmm. yeah, which which I have now adopted, yeah, uh, and <laughs> because uh, well, hey, you've met me that that's kind of like the thing is it's like going, I will look good, but I am also going to punch you in the face, yeah. I think that's uh, and, and I think that's an element of it, and it's like so going back in history when we think, we think about where dandyism started really rising up mm-hmm. in I guess around the eighteen well. Probably prior to that, was like seventeen. I mean, very late, very late eighteenth, uh, early nineteenth century. It's sort of great flowering yeah. was the Regency period, so you know around the time of Waterloo, and and it was also the time when like a lot of the dandies would also be boxers. Boxing was the dandy sport, absolutely. If they weren't boxers themselves, they were avid pugilistic enthusiasts fans. i guess yeah fans yeah, enthusiasts yeah enthusiasts yeah. of boxing and I, I always found that fascinating because again in, in london when you look at the traditional boxers in london they would always be there with the double-breasted pinstripe suit that chris you chris you banks chris you banks chris you banks, yeah, chris yeah. You banks uh, is, is the epitome of of like the british boxer yeah and like the trash talking which is yeah. an american invention you are always respectful of yeah. your opponent and and like complimentary of the other person after you beat them, mm. and and like Chris Eubank is is a, is a great example, and I, I love that association. And I think a lot of people go, oh, if you have to be a dandy, then you're somehow not manly. Mm-hmm. That dandyism and boxing were so closely tied together. They still are. I mean, I think you know uh, Jack Johnson, definitely one of the great Black American dandies. Mm. Uh, Gentleman Jim Corbett. Uh, yep. you know, you, you've got these these figures throughout boxing history. It's I think it's partly because there's crossover with organized crime. There's this sort of <laughs> it's definitely you know there's there's huge prize purses being exchanged. There's you know gangsters and boxers I think are definitely big. I mean, some of them might not be dandies, but there's always a flam, you know flamboyance to it, uh, and there's a kind of showmanship about showing off your what you've won. Uh, and flaunting, I guess, yeah, it's it's sort of a, it's a way of kind of throwing things in people's faces as well. My favorite Jack Johnson thing was he used to, you know, he'd have like three white girlfriends and he'd sit them in the front row, and he'd ta- he'd talk to them while beating up you know these white guys. He'd be, like be, he'd be pummeling the hell out of some like white prize fighter, and he'd start ta- he'd be like flirting with his white girlfriends in the front row to just like outrage people, and I just love that. It was just such a kind of 
flamboyant and eccentric thing to do and dangerous thing at the time. You know, I mean, he was Absolutely. you know lucky he didn't get lynched for it or something. I guess when you're Jack Johnson, no one's going to play with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's reasonable. Yeah. You've got some, some sense of uh, self-security there. So I have to ask at this point if you have seen the movie The Gentleman. No. Oh. Oh, is that the new, is it Guy Ritchie or something? Yeah, absolutely. It's the new Guy Ritchie flick. I did, the trailer didn't look good. Was it good? I saw it the weekend it came out because I'm a big Guy Ritchie fan, yeah. except for when he was with Madonna. Right. And um, But he gave her that lovely accent. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to go into the bathroom and set fire to my hair. And, and moving on, I really liked it, but there is some – Going back to your point about gangsters mm. and style and fashion and so forth, and uh, I think you know, Guy Ritchie's films are uh, exquisitely well presented in that perception of gangster London, which goes all the way back to the Cray Twins yeah. and and prior. Yes, I really liked it. It's actually a very enjoyable and rollicking story that plays out. So it's definitely worth watching. Okay. I mean, Wes, you watched it the other weekend. Yeah. They let Hugh Grant act. And I was like, who, oh, wow. who, who knew he could act? And he, he yeah. just does it extraordinarily well, but I was going to say the same thing, Liam. It's the, it's the attention to the detail in the costumes that they created for these characters who are thugs, who are gangsters, mm-hmm. they're criminals, but it just showcases a reality and an attention to the detail of organized crime. And as we talked about earlier, how that dandyism as an ideology, as an ethos carries throughout and how these characters move and how they speak to each other and, and the tone that they used, I I found it an, an excellent example of, of dandyism. Although that wasn't really the point of the movie. It was just a nicely, well-presented uh, experience of it. So I think it's worth a watch. What else are you going to do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would say, I've been trying to reconcile, you know, Guy Ritchie and Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> oh, it oh, wow. works so well. I mean, it it's a natural pairing. Uh, Interesting. I mean, it, it's like tequila and bad decisions. It's just a natural <laughs> pairing. <laughs> I had a friend when I was younger on the punk scene in New York who was obsessed with Guy Ritchie movies. And he's actually... He passed away a few years ago, but he was a, he was one of the people who had probably more in, influence on me in terms of thinking about style than anybody else because he had the most sort of eclectic, interesting look, and it was it wasn't flamboyant at all. Um, he was a Jewish kid from Brooklyn who was obsessed with reggae music, and his style was basically Jason Statham plus like like late sixties, early seventies, British skinhead soccer hooligan plus like Brooklyn Jewish guy plus a little bit of hip hop. So he'd have like Adidas shell toes, a tweed jacket, a little gold chain and like some stay pressed trousers and a flat cap. And I thought he was just the coolest kid. And he Mm. had, he had, because I didn't know anyone else at the time at, at our age who had so many influences. It was sort of remarkable that he knew about all these things and he was combining them. Like everyone else was like, okay, I'm a punk. I'm a mod. I'm a goth. I'm a raver. Mm. And this kid was like, no, you know what? I'm all these little things. I've got like a little bit of, of, you know, 
soccer casual. I've got a little bit of, you know, country gentleman, and I've got a little bit of, you know, Brooklyn Jew with a with a uh, star of David around my neck, and it was perfect. And uh, yeah, he he was one of the great influences in my life. Dressing, he ended up becoming the lead singer for a reggae band called uh, the Frighteners, and I can't recommend their albums enough. That's just a side note. Guy Ritchie reminded me of that. Wes is now going to go and find that and put oh, that I on as their exit right. track. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he had the voice of an angel. He died very tragically of, of uh, what's it called? Uh, ALS, uh, Luke Gehrig's disease. Oh, yeah, at a, oh, at, a very, at the age of like 36 or something. But uh, he recorded one incredible album before it happened. We have that, which is nice. We'll put that on the notes and make sure everyone gets a chance to listen to it. I, I want to yeah. segue into, into wrapping up just respecting the listener's time, but we could probably talk to you for hours. Yeah, this is great. (laughs) But you mentioned, you mentioned influences and you are certainly one of our influences. We were introduced to you from your show with Bethany Atelier Reed. So anyone who's not listening to that, they should go listen to that. But since then you've, you've been a great influence for us. We, we love following you. Can you just take a quick moment for the listener and plug some of your things that you're up to right now, your, your tailoring, your Instagrams, your, all the things you're doing. So, I mean, the home base for stuff for me is nattyadams.com. Uh, you can get information about my tailoring business there, uh, some information about my books. And also, I need to update it. I haven't updated it recently, but on the writing section, I, I usually keep a, a running track of my latest articles. Um, lately, I've been writing mainly for Inside Hook magazine, which is a really good... Uh, ostensibly men's interest magazine, but it's it's quite open-ended in terms of culture and, and all sorts of things. And they let me write about a lot of cool stuff. I'm doing a, a daily Instagram live chat with people uh, at 5 p.m. Eastern every weekday. It's just been something to kind of keep me in the habit of interviewing and talking to people, much like this podcast kept you guys, prepared you for distance socializing, (laughs) which is what I'm trying to do too. I've been fortunate enough in my years working uh, as a writer and and as a a clothier to uh, know a lot of interesting people. And so now I'm getting to interview curators and artists and designers and decorators Mm. and, you know, just every kind of thing, filmmakers, poets, all different kind of disciplines and areas and chatting to them about, about their lives and about their thoughts. And that's been really fun. Did you say pirates? Uh, I did not, but I did interview just on Thursday. I interviewed my friend Isaac Fitzgerald, who's the author of a great new children's book called How to Be a Pirate. It's a fantastic children's book, and it's all about tattoos and pirates and being brave. Isaac used to work for me. Oh, my God. I think he did one campaign in his life, uh-huh. and he, he was working for me. It was 2005, and like I've loved watching him achieve yeah. Fame just oh. by being him, and like, yeah, his his his. I haven't read the How to Be a Pirate, but yeah, like his book, chefs and tattoos, and, and like, yeah. he's just a great all around person. Oh, I'm so yeah, small world. He's such a great guy. I I only met him last year, uh, but we've he's come to New Orleans a few times since then, and we've hung out and become quite chummy. And uh, yeah, I hope to be better friends with him. I just had a whole total freak out. That's awesome moment, by the way. <laughs> <Good>. uh, <laughs> It's a small world, um, but I wouldn't want to paint it. <laughs> exactly. And Natty, I appreciate all of the, the work that you're doing. And I say I, I have a I have a, a bow wave of people that I will bring to you for 
tailoring, which will be the next thing that we will talk about. That would be great because, uh, yeah, I don't know it what I'm going to make another suit right now. <laughs> no, seriously, when I when I I said I've been sharing that photo of the the women's suit you made with the burlesque dance with a lot of my friends and all of us. Uh, we do want to come down and have go through with you the creative oh, process yeah, that I'd you love go to through do that. making suits. You have four completely different body types and perspectives yeah. in terms of creating something. I think it's fascinating. I think you're a fan- fabulous and fascinating person. Oh, thank you. I, I can't wait. I really Seriously, like, yeah. as, as Wes said, I, we could hang around for hours. And I, I apologize to Sarah already for sending you back drunk after we met in New Orleans. <laughs> it's a bad habit of mine. Uh, <laughs> It's such a delight uh, to to be able to talk with you and continue to be able to talk with you as well. Yeah, it's been a real treat. Uh, Thank you, guys. It's been fun. Thank you, listener. And uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments for us or for Natty, you can email us at themoderndandy.life. Thank you, Natty. Thank you, Liam. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, guys. Yes, Natty. It's been a pleasure. I, I it's genuinely a pleasure. Oh, ditto. Hey, where's we stopped recording yet?